Welcome to Touch Podcast, conversations of spirit and body. This is Nate. This is Ryan. A little warning here, folks. The themes in this podcast include topics not suitable for children or adults who act like children. This is Ryan again. For many, sex is a justice issue. I know it is for me. And while this podcast focuses more on expression and practice, we will regularly touch base with the topic of sexual justice. So today on Touch Podcast, we are speaking with Dr. Angela Yarber of the Holy Women Icons Project. She is a preacher, an activist, author, dancer, painter, and has her own nonprofit. Now, this episode was supposed to play in March for Women's History Month, but due to technical difficulties on our side of things, we couldn't get it out in time. I want to say as part of introduction here that our individual behavior is important, and so is our societal behavior. As a community and as a country, we have certain ways of treating certain kinds of people, and those treatments are grounded in a belief about ourselves as well as our beliefs about others. For example, if I believe deep down that women are inferior to men, then as a man, I'll consciously and unconsciously make sure that the societal structures I help to create will help people like me, men, and will treat men as if they are more valuable than women. That advantage I get from those systems, even if I didn't help to create those systems, is a societal privilege to me as a man. Yeah, so our individual sexual behavior is important. The collection of those behaviors across the population is important as well as because they create the culture and that culture exerts pressure on this generation as well as the next. Some of it constructive and some of it not so much. So if you've never heard a feminist theologian, I'm really excited that you're listening today. If you've never heard a woman queer preacher speak, I am thrilled that you have tuned in. Because Dr. Angela Yarber is going to lay out society's view of women and how our reading of scripture impacts the opportunities for all little girls. Okay, I need to be quiet, but I'll say one more thing. Dr. Yarber grew up in a small town in the South as a Baptist. And uh, here's just a little snippet of some of the chit-chat we had before we started our official conversation. But I think it helps give some of the context for where her ministry has gone since then. Person of faith. And so before that, I had been like this super weird teenager who like marched in PETA parades and was a raging feminist. And um, this church told me that I and, and was headed to Juilliard and all these things in the performing arts. And this church told me like, none of those things work with being Christian. And so I had maybe about like three or four years um, of, uh, I wouldn't say like incredibly conservative. I mean, yes, on the true love weight side, but not necessarily theologically. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was pretty horrible. And I have <laughs> a lot of shame myself, but also in the fact that I taught that, you know, as as a clergy person for several years. Well, I did too. And a lot of people are uh, confessing their shame and regret for, well, and it was the only thing, of course, for me, this would have been in the 90s as a youth minister in the 90s. And it was the only thing available. There's only curriculum that I I knew of that was available for youth. So that's what I picked up. And that's what we had done in my church, an earlier version of it. So, yeah. Yeah. 
All right, welcome to Touch Podcast. This is Ryan, and we're here with Dr. Angela Yarber of the Holy Women Icons Project. She is an activist, a leader, an author, um, and Angela, you and your family live in Hawaii, and you have posed a question related to your this project. Where are all the women? So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this, and tell us where all the women are. That's a great question. Um, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> um, well, my wife and our four-year-old child, we've lived in Hawaii for a little over a year and um, run the Holy Women Icons Project nonprofit. And... Um, We've been a nonprofit not even a year yet, but we've been doing this work for almost a decade of um, painting folk feminist iconography, writing about the stories of revolutionary women throughout history and mythology, and then leading a lot of special programming related to it that we could talk about at some point if you want to. Um, but it didn't always start out this way. For 14 years, I was a pastor. For well over a decade, I was a professor, and so was my wife. But along the way, things became toxic, and microaggressions against uh, women and queer people raged, and we decided this wasn't the life we wanted to live and wasn't the way that we wanted to raise our child. So we um, left our jobs, sold our home, traveled full-time for two years trying to discern what to do next and decided to kind of make that leap of faith of putting all of our our hopes into this kind of long-term goal that we always had of turning the Holy Women Icons Project into a nonprofit, creating a retreat center. And that ended up surprisingly and unexpectedly being in Hawaii, which was never the plan. And um, so along the way, I've painted um, over 90 icons, folk feminist icons of women from history and mythology. And uh, a lot of that comes from asking the question, where are all the women? Yeah, well, um, for people, we'll have a photo on the website, but for people who um, give us a sense uh, for people listening at home, when you say a holy woman icon, what, what would they be looking at if they could be looking at one right now? Sure. So uh, basically, I say that I give traditional iconography a folk feminist twist. So folk is the style of painting, and then feminist is the lens through which I do this painting and research. We can talk about that more in a bit if you want. But um, basically, what I've noticed is throughout the iconography of virtually every wisdom tradition, there is a tremendous dearth of women represented, sometimes none at all. And many of the times, at least in the Christian tradition, when men are portrayed, they're often completely whitewashed in that the men are actually historically men of color and they're painted white. Mm. And both of those things are tremendously problematic, uh, racist, sexist, oppressive. And so I've decided to paint these images of women and uh, they're often queer women and or women of color. And um, one thing that I've noticed when I started looking at kind of feminist spirituality artwork is that if an art historian were to do a formal analysis of that art and do a formal analysis of like playboy or pornography, the formal analysis would be quite similar. The intent of course is very different, but the emphasis is on women's bodies, the breasts and the hips, because a lot of especially white women's 
feminist spirituality, um, tries to say, well, instead of shaming women's bodies, we need to lift them up as sacred and holy and all these things. And that's, that's good, but can also be oppressive because it, it lifts up only women's bodies and, uh, not all women's bodies are the same. And so one thing that I do in my paintings is that I expand the woman's heart so large that it encompasses the majority of the torso, sometimes the whole body. And then after researching these women, I write kind of poetically the essence of their life or the cry of their heart across their heart on the painting. So they've got some of a body, they have a face, um, hair and arms stretching out of the body, but kind of a way to say what's most important is not necessarily the body, but the interior, what, what lies within and to lift that up in these revolutionary women's lives. Yeah. And so when I think of icons, they're quite beautiful. Um, I'm looking at the website now and, um, uh, and listeners can go to holy woman, holy women icons.com, um, to see, uh, many of your pieces of art. What, and when I think of an icon, I think of something that, um, was designed to be either shown in a, in a, in a church or, or reproduced some way so that people could be, could return to it, um, for, for meaning. Do you, do you have some sense uh, in creating these that, that that is, is your hope or how, how do you see people using these in their? Yes. Yeah. Um, so they, for me, at least it is um, a devotional practice or a spiritual practice, the practice of researching them and then painting them. And then um, in conversations that I've had on some other podcasts and, and other folks who have purchased icons is that my hope is that they're a bit more accessible um, than traditional iconography because unless you are raised in a particular tradition that uses those icons and because you and I are both uh, Baptist, we know that uh, we definitely were not <laughs> surrounded by iconography in our religious life. Um, they are often inaccessible and I would say that some of them for me at least are a little brooding and intimidating. Like when I look into the eyes of Christ Pentocrator, like it freaks me out. And so, um, I wanted to not do that, make these a little bit more accessible and understandable so that the eyes of all the women, for example, are closed in a state of uh, meditation or enlightenment, which you would see in a lot of uh, Buddhist and some Hindu iconography. Um, but I think that one of the powers of art more broadly is its ambiguity. So people who experience them can, can experience it in whatever way they wish, but it's my hope that they can become little altars in all of our worlds, um, that many of the folks that I know who have purchased them have a little altar in their home or use this as a source of inspiration and empowerment um, to look at whoever um, is portrayed in this icon and kind of be gal galvanized and enlivened to go forth into their day and live into their best version of their self and do the work of justice. So as, as a feminist, as a minister, as a pastor, as an artist, how do you see throughout history and then like in this time um, that we're living in right now, how a woman's sexual energy can be, has been helpful in art and not helpful and how could that help us today? Sure. So I think um, that throughout history and today that 
oftentimes when women are depicted in art, it's really buying into stereotypes and tropes. We see this in film and television and uh, not the best literature and even some good literature um, and an artwork. And I think kind of two examples pop into my mind with regard to this. One of them, a contemporary one, would be um, during either Obama's early presidency or when he was campaigning, um, there was a magazine cover of Michelle Obama and it was a cartoon that was drawn of her. And they drew her um, like really curvy, kind of sexy body in military fatigues with a huge Afro and that's not how she wears her hair. Um, there's nothing, I mean, Afros are fabulous, but that isn't indeed how she looks. And I can't quite remember what the headline was, but basically it was trying to put her into the stereotype of the angry black woman, um, which really does not describe her. And since then, she's talked quite a bit about how she had to go to such great lengths to try to avoid that stereotype. And so that was um, one example of portraying um, a really um, powerful, brilliant woman um, in political life um, and how an artist took that and just put this nuanced, thoughtful person into a stereotype just through the artwork. Like you wouldn't even need the headline in order to see that. This is Ryan. That magazine, by the way, was the July 14th, 2008 New Yorker magazine cover. Okay, back to her. And then a historical example that I give, and I'll try not to jump too much on a soapbox about this, is that of the figure of Salome, um, who is in, in the Gospels. We actually don't actually see the name Salome, but um, the dance of a little girl, Herodias or Herodias's daughter. And, um, you know, the story goes that she danced, she pleased um, Herod, and then um, he said, you can have whatever you want. And her mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And so then you get the head of John the Baptist on the platter. And historically, any artwork that was depicting Salome, who was named by Josephus, early early church history, a Jewish historian. Um, historically in medieval time or the Renaissance period, Salome was depicted as a little girl because that's the Greek for her, thugatros means little girl. Anytime it's been used uh, throughout scripture has been for someone like 12 or younger. And it's this little girl doing like kind of gymnastics-y twirl type dance movements. Like when I think of the dances that I did as a kid where it was watch me, watch me, often with roller skates or a hula hoop. That's kind of what Salome was doing. And throughout history, that started to shift to where um, Gustav Moro started doing these paintings of her. In fact, he was obsessed. I think he did hundreds of paintings of her where like her breasts were exposed and she was clearly um, an adult and had like kind of sensual movements and really sexy, wild, disheveled hair. And then Richard Strauss composed an opera along those lines. And then famously, Oscar Wilde wrote his play where basically Salome does the Dance of the Seven Veils, which is where you're removing a veil with each dance move to where at the end she's naked. So it's like a striptease. <clears throat> and we see this um, shift to where instead of like paying attention to what the text actually says, most people's understanding of Salome is dictated by this artwork to where I recall once kind of defending her in a seminary class and a, a young man in the class said, well, she was just a slut doing a striptease. And for one thing, we could have a whole conversation about slut shaming and female agency and all these things related to striptease. That's a whole nother conversation. 
but it was also the fact that this student who could translate Greek for himself was more influenced by these artistic renderings of Salome than by the actual story. And I think that that happens for a lot of women throughout history and even in iconography that women are pegged into particular roles and they're either desexualized, they're a Mary, or they are a Jezebel, they're a whore, and they can never be anything else. And uh, this even influenced commentators like uh, the famous Matthew Henry, a very conservative commentator, writes about the pernicious evil of dancing and how no one should ever let their daughters dance the waltz, for example, because you know what happened when Salome danced. It will inevitably lead to the beheading of a prophet. Um, so those are kind of some examples, I think, of um, these were, were men in power in these instances, depicting women in one of two ways. You can either be a virgin or you could be a whore, but you cannot be nuanced. You cannot be a sexual being. And if you are, then you're going to fall into that uh, Jezebel category. I wonder, uh, I don't know how to answer, ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I think, how would you, how do you go about getting suburban heterosexual soccer moms excited about um, this, the kind of work that you're doing? Because it seems like they have, there's so much untapped potential and power and energy there. And um, gosh, man, I, that sound, I realize there are in, in, even embedded in that question is stereotype generalizations and um, it's just kind of a gross question. But do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, how, how do you get this conversation to be more than, um, than an academic question? Uh, like, like sometimes in, in ministers, they have, we have issues and we're talking about it and it's really only an academic conversation or it's only an art historian conversation or it's just a queer conversation mm -hmm. how how does this conversation become a big conversation where where um where soccer moms and bonehead dads like me can can be accomplices can be advocates and and, and join a movement like the holy women project that's a, a really great and important question and something that i think it's one important and i appreciate you acknowledging the privilege in that because for a lot of people and i will say us in some instances because this applies to me for a lot of us we have no choice but to think about these things right because it um legislation and the way churches behave and the way denominations behave et cetera, et cetera, Im impacts our lives in in ways that can be soul assaulting and body assaulting um in the case of like police brutality for example um but i think the way that when I work with others who might not see the point in this, is every time I teach a class, whether it is um, graduate or college room classroom, or recently we've started a revolutionary girls project where we take the Holy Women Icons project into middle school and high schools, is that I close by asking the question, so what? So a lot of times we unpack queer theory or intersectional ecofeminist theory and philosophy, or we talk about art history, et cetera, et cetera, with all these kind of big words and jargon, and we learn about these amazing people from history and myth. But at the end of the day, if um, we are not galvanized by learning about this to help more women into managerial positions at Walmart, or 
if we are not then enlivened to open the textbooks of our children and scan the pages and see the faces of only white men on, on almost every page um, to say we need to actually change this, that there are revolutionary women, uh, revolutionary queer women, revolutionary women of color throughout history whose stories we have not been taught and who have had just as much of an impact, if not more, on our history and our myth and the shaping of our world as these men that we are taught about. And so then we have a responsibility to teach all children and adults and everyone about this to say, you know what, when we look up at these stained glass windows, these are the stories of women that need to be stained in glass. When we open up our history books, these are the stories that we need to learn about and see because that shifts the narrative. Um, it also broadens our understanding of history um, to use something that seems a little cliche that a lot of people will use, um, say that it's also a her story, not just a history. Um, and that these impact the way that these kids grow up because um, if you believe in the notion if you can't see it you can't be it then there are countless little girls growing up in the world who are looking at their political leaders their religious leaders etc uh, etc et and not seeing any reflections of themselves so that's part of the point of the holy women icons project is to give people an opportunity to look at an icon and see here is someone who looks like me or whose story intersects with my life in this kind of way. And that it isn't just all um, 12 white dudes who weren't actually white, you know, who, who were <laughs> Jesus's best friends, for example. Well, yes, um, for listeners at home, it's, <laughs> it's okay. The disciples were not white guys. Go ahead, sorry. Right, no, and, and I, I, um, I, I hope that that would galvanize people to care. Um, and if it doesn't, then maybe they aren't paying attention. Well, and I, th I think that, um, yeah, everybody gets really busy and it's like the thing in front of them is the most important thing. And I know that is true for me. Um, but I, I think one of the themes that's the, through this conversation is that everybody has to believe that women should be able to choose when and how they are sexualized. And if, if it's me who's always deciding that, whether it's an Oscar award winner or a woman in the pulpit or my nine-year-old daughter, if I get to always choose that, then this is not going to be a good world to live in. Right, right. It completely strips people of their agency. Yeah. When we were editing this show, I realized that I didn't ask Dr. Yarber to explain what she meant by the word queer. So I actually had to call her back again and ask her to give a quick definition, and here it is. So Angela, um, you've been using the term queer on this podcast so far, and would you mind giving us, our listeners, uh, your definition of what you mean by that? Sure. So when I refer to myself as queer or use the term queer, I'm drawing upon three different pretty well understood understandings of the word queer, and I'm using a bit of all of them. So the first is to use queer as a type of umbrella term for the LGBTQIA community, because trying to include lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, gender nonconforming, intersex, allied, asexual, questioning, et cetera, et cetera, 
without leaving anyone out can sometimes turn into a bit of alphabet soup. And there's also, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there's some contention and debate over which letters should come first. Um, oftentimes, folks who are transgender or gender nonconforming or gender queer are left out of the acronym. And so using the term queer is a way to attempt to include everyone and specifically to include both sexual orientation and gender identity. And by that, I mean sexual orientation like lesbian, gay, bisexual. Um, and then with gender identity, that would be referring to people who are transgender, gender nonconforming, or gender queer. And so that kind of first understanding of it is as an umbrella term. The second is drawing from the academic discipline of queer theory, which uh, that would be an entire podcast in and of itself. But in brief, um, the academic discipline of, of queer theory seeks to dismantle the binaries that are constraining and oppressive for people. So male, female, man, woman, gay, straight, to dismantle those binaries and to see what exists in the interstitial space in between, or to just say that folks should have um, the opportunity to be whoever they are without having to check a box, a binary box. So that's kind of the second understanding. And then the third understanding is really hearkening back to the dictionary definition of queer, which is to intentionally transgress norms or to subvert norms. And so in this way, a lot of people in the queer community are reclaiming the word because many folks know, including myself and particularly those of um, kind of older generation X and older, um, know that the word queer has been used in really disparaging, discriminatory, hurtful, and malicious ways in the past. But by returning to this definition, people are trying to reclaim the word. And so when I call myself queer, or when I refer to some of the things that I do in my life as queer or as queering, making it into a verb, I'm saying that I'm intentionally transgressing norms that are otherwise oppressive. So when I am queering my parenting, queering my marriage, queering my ministry, all of those are, are ways of saying that I'm trying to subvert what has been oppressive to many people in the past and reclaim them and redeem them in really beautiful ways. So when I use the word queer, it really needs an incredibly long footnote filled with a lot of references to Judith Butler. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, everyone who identifies in this way might define it slightly differently. There are many people who are LGBTQ who might not use this term because they either find it offensive or oppressive or that it doesn't apply to them. But there are many of us um, who kind of use these three different definitions or will use one of the three when they define themselves as queer. Thank you. That is really helpful <laughs> and fascinating. <laughs> no, and I think our listeners will be like, oh, now I know because it will be the first time. Good heard it explained. All right, back to the show. Some of the, some of the f people um, you have painted um, from mythology and from history, um, tell us the names of some of those. I'm looking at your website, but I don't think I can pronounce some of them. Like For I, sure. can, I can pronounce the breast cancer goddess and <laughs> I'm Harriet Tubman, but beyond that, um, there are some folks here um, I'll let you talk about. Sure. So I'll lift up a few of my favorites. So um, I think if I had to pick a favorite of all of them, it would be Polly Murray. And Polly Murray is an overall complete revolutionary. Am I allowed to say she's a badass? 
Yes. Okay. Um, so Polly Murray um, was a badass in a, in a whole lot of ways. So um, she was um, a black woman who was raised in North Carolina and um, during the civil rights movement, she applied to law school and was turned, first she was accepted at Harvard because they saw the name Polly and thought that it was a nickname for Paul. So they thought she was a man. And then when they found out she was a woman, they took away her scholarship and said she couldn't come. So she applied to one of the University of North Carolina schools and they did not allow her entrance because she was black. So eventually she went to Berkeley to pursue her law degree and coined the phrase Jane Crow to acknowledge the sexism that accompanied racism and Jim Crow laws. And then she wrote a book that Thurgood Marshall called the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. And then one of my mythological or scriptural women is the Shulamite. And this is super saucy, so get out your fans and your inhalers because it's a super sexy story. But um, I think a lot of folks were, were taught when they were kids that they shouldn't read the Song of Songs until they got married. Um, so this is an example of uh, reading the text through the lens of um, a historian, a, a dance historian, and also um, through the lens of, of translating scriptures. So this is a, a Hebrew text, and when you actually translate it, um, you'll see that there are no male pronouns in this poem. It's a love poem, and um, it's describing this um, beautiful woman, the Shulamite, who's dancing. And as you describe her dance, it's very clear when you read it through the lens of dance history that the dance form that she was doing was a belly dance. And historically, belly dances were dances done by women for women where men were not allowed to be uh, permitted. And so when you have the absence of the male pronouns, when you translate the Hebrew, and when you read it through the lens of dance history and know the history of belly dance, then you see that the lover doting upon the Shulamite is another woman. And to me, that's mind-blowing. Like, really <laughs> I think that'll blow the minds of a lot of people listening, too. <laughs> um, and, it's, uh, you know, I've, and I have I've never heard that. I've yeah, yeah. That, yeah. So I wrote about this in my book, Dance and Scripture, and um, and then in some other articles and things like that. But um, her story is beautiful, and it's really sensuous. Like the the Hebrew kind of drips off the tongue in pillow talk fashion, shubi, shubi, hashulameth, and translates as it talks about the curves of her body. Her quivering thighs are like jewels crafted by artists' hands. It literally says, so this is really saucy, may your vulva never lack wetness. I mean, that's that's pretty explicit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and that's a story in the sacred canon viewed as holy by Christians and Jews alike. Do you happen um, to have chapter and verse available? Some people are probably going to run to their Bible right yeah, now. Yeah, so this is... You know, um, make sure that no one else is at home. <laughs> Song of Songs, chapter six and seven. Six and but seven, when you yeah. read it in English, it doesn't come across quite as sexy, but you can read through it and see that there are no male pronouns. Um, there's also some, I won't get into all the like Hebrew word etymology or like the um, grammar of it all, but but it's pretty clear that it falls into this brand of Arabic love poetry called a wasp and it's kind of reversed. And, and I claim that the reason that the form of it is reversed is because it's queer. Um, and I, you, I think that you that's would. <laughs> of course I would, of course I would. <laughs> Well, we'll have to leave it there. A big thank you to Dr. Angela Yarber of the Holy Women Icons Project. You can find out more about her and her project along with the books and events at holywomenicons.com. Coming up next on Touch Podcast, lots of exciting conversations. David Gushy, Joshua Harris, Carla Ewert, and many more.
this is Nate. If you want to connect with us on social media, we got Twitter, we have Instagram. In fact, I've never been good at any of those, and I'm actually using them for the first time with this. So this will be really fun. You can find us on the web at touchpodcast.com, where you can also watch some extra videos that that I've done and some extra extra photos and audio content that Ryan's done, and just a lot of written content from the both of us. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And you can email us at info at touchpodcast.com and call or text us at 678-685-1010. Our social media handle is touch underscore cast.